You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Well, girls and boys, the sun's coming up later and later, and the darkness is upon us. But cowpokes like us know that when the going gets cold and dark, we still get going with a double shot and a dawn patrol. That's right, up before the rooster's pecking and the cows are mooing, and out the door for those perfect turns or perfect conditions. And though most of us aren't galloping into the office anymore with hands chalky and our ski pants swishing, doesn't mean that your Dawn Patrol humble brag isn't just as effective when you're five minutes late to that Zoom call. Sorry, folks, you casually say, I'm just not myself if I don't get up at three in the morning and go send some sick shit while y'all are sleeping. Black Diamond is here to support your morning mania with equipment for the Dawn Patrol. Headlamps to light up the pre-dawn hours, the perfect layering systems to peel as you heat up and the sun finally does come up. Ski gear for the punch-drunk 4am skiers, climbing gear for the unrested and off-route climbers, and even bouldering pads, cause let's face it, you're gonna numb out and dry fire. So wake up, buckaroos, and though caffeine may seem like all you need, let Black Diamond supply all the gear you need to get up and get down on your next dawn patrol. Black Diamond is a proud sponsor of the Enormal Cast. Is your relationship with your climbing shoes starting to feel like just a series of Netflix nights with carry out? Is the spark gone? Are the dreamy days of wistfully wondering if your shoes miss you when you can't be romping in the hills together faded away? Well, let the Sportiva theory put some big bang back in your life. Extreme sensitivity combined with high dynamism allows the theory to have unprecedented pedidexterity and reactivity on holds. Mmm, pedidexterity, dynamism, reactivity. Isn't that just what you've been secretly longing for? Do you really want to spend your sun-drenched days and climbing gym nights with a board last and confining laces? Or with an aggressive and ultra-sensitive slipper that lets you really feel those holds you so lovingly caress every chance you get? Look, you and your old shoes can still be friends. Even meet up once in a while for a 5.9 Audible Air too. But the Sportiva Theory is going to fulfill your needs in a way that those old shoes just never could. So if you've lost that loving feeling, then reignite the passion with the Theory Climbing Shoe from Sportiva. Go to Sportiva.com or your favorite local shop to test the theory. Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, a big place. That's, out. Out town. That's a big nice. place. You sold What's it that out. I'll see. You really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having them with you. We'll make I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, with support from Maxim Ropes and the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. (laughs) 
Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Kalous, and it is December 16th, 2020, about uh, 10 o'clock here in Colorado, and this is episode 210 of the Enormacast. And on today's show, we have a special interview with Jason Nelson, author, artist, rock climber, dry tooler, developer, a real journeyman type climber. And why is this interview special? Well, they're all kind of special, aren't they? In their own special little way. Uh, But this is actually special because it's going to be a little bit of a time travel throwback to January of 2020. Now, what is special about January of 2020, specifically January 26th of 2020? Well, unless you were a super news hound, really, really paying attention, nobody had really heard of the coronavirus at that point. Really paying attention. Maybe there was this little news about this thing that was uh, coming out of Wuhan, China, and you know, a tiny bit of concern on January 26th. But man, we didn't know it was coming. And uh, so, yeah, this interview is an uh, old school Enormacast interview from before the pandemic when, when the future just seemed bright and wonderful and all things were on the table. Halcyon days. Anyway, how did it get uh, shelled for so long? Well, what happened was is I was sitting there in January, still hungover from the TAPS episode, without a single interview in the hopper. And uh, I kind of went bonkers a little bit and uh, and got a bunch done. And plus the uh, trade show, when we used to have trade shows, I don't know if we'll ever have trade shows again, but when we used to all gather in a building in Denver at that point and uh, hang out and talk, shake hands, ugh, shaking hands. Do you remember shaking hands? Anyway, we shake a lot of hands at the at the old uh, old trade show, which just seems weird now that you would go in there into a room in the middle of winter and just like, touch people all day long. But uh, where was I? Oh, yeah. I stacked up a ton of interviews, which was great because when the uh, lockdown pandemic hit, I was able to kind of just coast for a while and put out interviews that I'd already done before I switched over to doing them remotely finally after episode 200. And uh, yeah, so this one, uh, you know, just by the time I sort of got to it in the in the queue, it was the middle of summer and uh, felt weird because we talk a lot about ice climbing and Jason Nelson is a uh, pretty well-known ice climber and also a very well-known developer of dry tooling, overhanging, upside down, no ice, ice tool type climbing. So uh, yeah, it just didn't feel right. So finally, I ran into Jason just the other day and I said, yeah, man, I want to put that interview out. Do you, do you want to redo it to, uh, to get to you know, something more current? And he was like, no, I think we did a good job. And I, I agreed with him. I think we did do a good job. Um, but I did call him this morning. And uh, we got online and uh, and did an addendum. So it's going to jump from the distant past, so distant, <laughs> less than a year ago, feels so distant, to uh, the, the very recent past of this morning. Of course, it'll be even further in the past by the time you listen to this and maybe years in the past uh, by the time you get around to it, if you're catching up. Anyway, time travel, podcasting, whatever. So uh, yeah, so that's what we got going on today. And uh We'll get right to it. Again, uh, Jason is something of a journeyman climber, good at a lot of different things, and he does the work. He puts the time in developing, writing guidebooks, uh, you know, promoting areas, and I think he's just sort of an all-around good guy to have in 
the community. He's very much associated with Ure, Colorado, the home of the Ure Ice Park, Ure Ice Festival, because he's written two guidebooks for the area, the Rock Climbing Guidebook, Climbs of the Million Dollar Highway, and the Ice Climbing Guidebook we talk about in this, which is Suffer Candy Volume 1. But he's also developed a ton of the roots that are in both of those books. Definitely a Ure guy as far as his, uh, I think, public image. And one of the more interesting angles for me in this interview is talking about dry tooling and developing dry tooling and the sort of dark arts that go into something like that because Jason has created several venues that are dry tooling only down in Ure. And it's actually a pretty unusual thing in the lower 48 to have venues that are just specifically pointed towards that. So that was kind of fun to talk about and and find out how that development goes in there. So if you guys are more interested in his guidebooks and his art and photography and things like that, you can go to his website, visualadventures.com. All right, let's get to it. Time travel back to a, a simpler, happier time where the future looked bright. The Ure Ice Festival had just happened. Ice climbing was in full swing. The days were getting longer. Whispers of the great desert season were on the tips of our tongue. American climbers were actually still welcome in Europe and Canada. Yeah. Is the mic so, going to pick up these little squeaks? Yeah, that's okay. Okay. Your chair squeak, yeah. <laughs> it's authentic that way. <laughs> yeah, totally authentic. Crappy old chair. That came with the house. Oh, price is right. <laughs> For probably what three or four hundred thousand dollars, you get a free chair. Yeah, exactly. exactly. No, keep going. Keep going. Yeah, it's Carbondale, <laughs> yeah, huh? Exactly. Um, luckily, I knocked up a lawyer, so it's all, oh, yeah, yeah so good it's call. Working out pretty good. Why don't we start with the guidebook, the new guidebook? Let's just go there. That's kind of what what got us talking about this time around, and we've actually. I don't know. We've been talking about doing this for a while, like a couple of years. It's probably been a decade, I yeah. think, Chris. No, I haven't been doing this thing a decade. <laughs> How's it? All right. <laughs> there we go. I'm yeah. losing track of time again. <laughs> but yeah, it's you, you've been on the list. You're almost local. Uh, you just live down there in Ure, and I live up here in Carbondale, and we cross paths actually pretty frequently in yep. the grand scheme of things. So um, I'm glad you finally made it. Ah, uh, yeah, me too. Yeah, I'm stoked. Cheers. So yeah. Oh, yeah. Nice. So we're in an evening show, so we get to drink this time around. So, so yeah, let's talk about the new guidebook. Yep. So I'll uh, give a little introduction. Um, my name's Jason Nelson, and I just finished a new guidebook called Supper Candy Volume 1. And it's an ice climbing guide to Uray, Silverton, and Telluride areas. It started, the project was to try to follow up on what Jack Roberts had created, and I was thinking it would be Ah, most of Western Colorado or something, but I found myself filling a whole book just with those three towns. The more of Western Colorado will come in next fall um, in volume two. Okay, so that's what you're planning on doing is 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 racking them out in different volumes. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And so tell me uh, a, a little bit about the legacy of of uh, picking up where Jack. Um, he wrote the. You said that he had written the previous guy book. To the area, is that right? Yeah, so Jack had a Colorado ice guide, and it covered most of western Colorado. Uh, I 
you know, it didn't make it over to the front range. Um, I think we all thought he was going to come out with another one and kind of get the rest of the state. But unfortunately, we lost him in a climbing accident on Bridalvale Falls. And I didn't get a chance to ask Pam what what his future plans were, right. what, you know, got left undone. Right. But I, living in Urea and having written the rock climbing guide, it kind of seemed like an obvious thing to do or me being an obvious choice. I had a lot of pictures stored up over the years and I made the questionable decision to tackle the project. And I, I guess I say questionable because it's uh, always turns out to be tons more work than you think it's gonna. Yeah. And, and but with uh great reward, I mean, you pretty much, you can count on making like tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars off a guidebook, right? Uh, probably more towards the beginning. <laughs> um, no, guidebook authoring is, is uh, I think, a, I mean, in the grand scheme of thing, a, a relatively thankless task. I mean, there is some possible profit to be made, but I, there's a lot of trouble that goes with the freaking guidebook authoring, I think. Yeah, I think from a business, strictly business perspective, it's probably not a great, like, time money investment. <laughs> right. Like, don't, don't but, like, do an hourly on it. Yeah, but I think people who do well at businesses are also um, ones who love what they do. Right. So, you know, in that case, you you look back at it again, you know, it's like, I really love doing this. I get right. to go out and interview cool people. I get to run around with my cameras and drones and take pictures of cliffs that... And then the exploration part is super fun, too. I get to, before I felt like I'd kind of climb most of the things in Colorado. And once I start looking into it, I realize, holy shit, there's all kinds of things, like even right under my nose, I didn't know were there. or Maybe I never climbed. And so that whole like process of discovery is super neat, too. And you've done a, did you do the rock climbing guide, too, down to, for the URA area? Yeah, so I got a book called Climbs of the Million Dollar Highway, and that I started probably back early 2000s, and it's gotten bigger and bigger over the years. Initially, it was like, you know, a stapled thing I put together at Office Depot, and now it's a 425-page full-color book that uh, covers from Montrose, Uray, Ridgeway, down through Silverton. Okay. So similar area, a little bit. Yeah, very yeah. similar area. Cool. It's You're easiest like, to start in your backyard. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, it's anything. like the local expert anyway, so. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So what about the politics that go with, with guidebook authoring, um, especially when you get out into sort of the, the you know, places like Silverton, I think, might be a place where, where somebody might be a little bummed about some guidebook author sniffing around to their crag or what whatnot. Yeah, so that's an interesting one. By and large, I've received very little flack on oh, really? my guidebook writing. Yeah. Now, how much shit gets talking <laughs> behind my back, I can't measure. Well, who cares? And I'm sure it happens, right? Like, <laughs> if, shit just, get talk, if shit get, gets talked in the woods and nobody hears it, then who cares? Does it happen? <laughs> does right. It happen? Yeah, exactly. And by and large, the root, you know, most... Most of the root developers were all like very keen to help and help fact check. Um, we don't, especially with the rock climbing, we don't have crowding problems. Right. So that, you know, people, when I started the rock climbing book project, I was like, wow, if we don't start recording this, it's, 
it, the information's either going to get lost or confused. You can't right. really like walk around and go, oh, that looks like a 510 and that looks like a 511. Um, the rocks, just the way it featured, you can't, you can't make good judgment calls. Right. And that's kind of where I was like, well, I, I guess I'll get started on this. And at that time, uh, we had a, what do we call them? Little like city highlights in um, climbing and rock and ice magazine. Mm -hmm. And this was back like early 2000s. And this is about the same time I was starting the early versions of the guidebook. And I got a little bit of flack. Like people are like, oh, everyone from Boulder is going to come out here and <laughs> it's going to be crowded and it's going to be ruined. And, you know, like the dust never came and right, right, right. it never even had to settle. It's right, like, right, right. <laughs> it's like, well. Nobody really showed up, so yeah. I guess we'll carry on right. putting up roots right. and writing guidebooks yeah. and whatever else. And um, I also kind of, you know, this is my own conclusion, but I found that if roots don't get climbed, then they kind of go into remission. You right. know, they get covered in spider webs and dirt, and the trails get overgrown and eroded out. So kind of need some level of traffic regardless in order to keep your crags kind of yeah it's, it's like a sweet spot for sure and and with alpine kind of zone you know you, you you have hard winters down there uh for sure i mean stuff gets dirtier and dirtier because of runoff and and uh you know if if it's one thing if it gets climbed every season but a few seasons pass and it's almost returns to before anybody ever touched it plus you guys have limestone too and that it's the same way. It needs to kind of get some traffic on it and keep keep cleaning things off of it and stuff like that. Yeah, limestone is a peculiar lifespan. It's sort of like horrible to start where everything yeah. kind of breaks off and then it has this like these glory days and then it gets polished and becomes um, like rifle. Can I yeah. say that? Yeah, totally. <laughs> no, we love the polish. We, we yeah. don't. I, I always like to say we don't discriminate discriminate against the polish because <laughs> there's literally polish guys that climb in rifles so oh yeah uh, yeah yeah <laughs> well, i thought i had like a good solution worked out for the polish problem really? and rifle and that we could just start dry tooling on all the roots yeah yeah that and that would like retexturize everything but you know the the idea just didn't catch on no, with the rock no, climbers that, that'll make you a ton of friends going up there and prying off <laughs> shit on some free climb yeah and i don't that that's not cool um as of course being facetious. Yes, of course. Uh, yeah, so I mean, it's interesting because uh, the the politics have always been there, whether it was guidebooks or mountain project or whatever. You know, trying to keep things under wrap. And I've been on the line a few times with. I, I guess it's hypocritical, and that that's kind of what I've always thought is like, if you go to another area, and the first thing you do is grab the guidebook to find your way around. You know. But you don't want to have a guidebook or you don't want to have people visiting your area. I mean, that kind of just makes you an asshole because everywhere there's locals and, you know, you're not a local anywhere but your home crag. And so it's like if you want a welcomed, you know, if you want a welcome, welcome sort of uh, attitude when you go and climb somewhere else, whether it's a place like the Needles or it's in Ure or anywhere else, you know, it's like you have to provide that at your home crag too. Yeah, and you know some of my favorite trips uh, to climbing are places I felt welcome to, and like El Potrero Chico is a great example where, you know, it's a strange little town in the middle of Mexico, and nowhere did I ever feel more welcome as a climber, right? Um, especially you know back in the two thousands where it you know was kind of having its heyday of popularity, and, right? 
Um, even when uh, Kurt Smith left there, like I showed, I was there like the next year, and people are like, "Oh man, with Kurt le- when he left, all so did all the people, and we want him back." Right? Like, they really liked having us there as a user group. And <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe somebody shouldn't have run him out of town. Then <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's a complicated story with a lot of versions. Yeah, but no. arguably, yeah, I agree. No, it's funny because I was there actually for the the millennium. Me too. With, oh, you were? Yeah, I remember. Where the shit went down. Yeah, I was sitting there in his, um, what was it called? The uh, Rancho Cerro Gordo? Yeah. Right about as the the um, ball dropped and everybody was gone and there was like a flickering light in the kitchen. Like everybody had gotten kicked out like minutes before. Yeah, yeah. I was <laughs> the totally there too. Millennium, it's like, oh, this is a drag. Yeah. No, the party did go off on. It down, continued down on down the street of yeah, Homero. Yeah, which is but... what the whole point was. Of clearing that place out. It was to get everybody over there? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. At that point, it seemed, I think the the pie didn't seem big enough to, to those guys down there to be sharing it with uh, with Kurt, is what the impression that I got. Because I can believe that. That night, I mean, everybody, you know, he had advertised here in the States, the, the Millennium Gringo Disco or whatever. And so everybody was at Kurt's place and... When they cleared it out, I mean, we literally all wandered down the road and, and went back to Omero's, who had been used to having, like, the total, you know, rager. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, there we were. So, I mean, mission accomplished, but at the same time, like you said, a, a year later, maybe they were like, oh, maybe we shouldn't. <laughs> they were de- <laughs> yeah. definitely the people I talked to were <laughs> were missing him and yeah. the, I think the energy yeah. he brought, too. Like, yeah. He got a lot of stuff done. Yeah, for sure. And was really good at like getting people psyched. And he was putting in mountain biking trails and climbing routes. And, you know, it It takes really, I think, uh, a special kind of person to an area to be able to get all that done. Like, yeah, for sure. It's really hard. And it's really hard to motivate other people uh-huh. um, to get behind you, too. Yeah, I think, I mean, every area's got one, two, three people that seem to seem to shoulder the, you know, the real leaps forward, if you will. And yeah, for sure. You know, I mean, the place had been kind of coming together with the people messing around down there, but he sort of for sure put it on the map. And that was 20 years ago now, you know, that, that was the last time he was there. So, so I was down there this last April and, uh, crickets, not a, we had the whole place to ourselves. Really? In yeah. April? In April. It was huh. cold, though. We were All climbing right. in puffy coats. Right. It was crazy. On the outrage wall. Oh, but, really? I mean, that's just kind of an anomaly. Like, it was later in the season, right. so everybody had gone home, and there's oh, okay. still plenty of people going down there. You know, I think, uh, I mean, it just sort of, I mean, there was the tra- tragedy at the end of the year last year with, with Brad Gobright, but all the other media that's come out of there, it seems like it had like a little a little uh renaissance this year um with with i mean i've been seeing you know some professional athletes climber people quite a few of them sort of found it again for like hard climbing it had definitely gone out of vogue so but yeah it seems like there was quite a quite a resurgence this year of people going to potrero i think that's great like i love the community down there Mm -hmm. and um you know if you poke around a little more there's more limestone than you can ever begin to wrap your head around in that zone like yeah. in various directions out of monterey between el salto and westeca and other uh, stuff to the north of potrero and right you get out and wander around and 
meet people and check out the walls and your imagination is just blown. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of limestone down there, you know, poking around too much. (laughs) (laughs) You don't want to poke around too much. That's what, when we would, when we went down to uh, El Gigante in Chihuahua, that was, you know, it's like, yeah, you can go poke around, but don't. Get, Be careful where you poke around. Don't get too pokey. <laughs> don't go poke around by the marijuana fields. Yeah, or the poppy the... <laughs> fields or whatever else. Although famously, El Gigante has a poppy field right at the base of it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, which te- uh, freaked us out, but it turns out. And we were told, like, don't worry about it. You know, there's a guy down there. He's just a farmer, just like low-level farmer and not you know somebody to be worried about but he won't disappear no but he i mean he was armed but then i learned later that because some friends some spanish friends and i are were down there putting up a new route and he's they're like yeah i know he's armed because of wild animals he doesn't he, he's got a he's got a rifle with him because of uh because of wild animals not because he's gonna shoot anybody so <laughs> but we still kind of freaked out and then when we were finally on the wall we had sort of bypassed his field and and got up on the wall you know he was down there and gave us a big wave so oh cool yeah yeah. No, <laughs> later on I found out that he's like a totally cool dude. Oh, um, that sort of like deflates the story a little bit. Yeah. But in a way it kind of rounds it well, out. Well, it's cool. Nice I mean, way. you know, he's just growing poppies. Like he's at the bottom of the bottom of the food chain as far as yeah. as far as by drug the time trafficking it, yeah, goes. as far as drug trafficking goes. Just a guy out there with ten in his field. That's growing all. flowers. Yeah, yeah. Growing flowers. I mean, yeah, exactly. So well that's super cool. I mean, the the Petrero Chico thing, the guidebook thing, you know. And popularity at Crags is something that we're sort of, I think, dealing with in different ways right now. It sounds like you guys haven't really felt that much pressure down in your ray. Yeah, it's um, been, but other know, places are getting kind of hammered. You we're know? so insulated, being like six hours from any city. Yeah, um, you know, we've certainly seen more people come, but like still, most of the crags are empty. So it's right. Um, there's a couple areas that you'll see regular traffic and then not anymore, dude. See a normal cast. Boom. Yeah, I know. Floodgates are going to be open. I'm going to be crucified. No, it's been funny because I, I, years and years ago, I used to climb up in this place called the ghost river up in Canada for like three or four or five years in a row. Very famous for ice climbing. But I was up there to rock climb in the summer times. There's no lack of limestone up there. Exactly. Yeah. And so. You know, and then eventually I wrote an article for Climbing Magazine. And, and you single-handedly ruined it, didn't you? No, I, well, that was what everybody thought. Like, you know, it was, I was on the cover. Like, the cover was the Ghost River and spectacular shot and, and this big, super awesome overhanging route, you know, six pitches overhanging stuff. Like, incredible stuff. And the forums at the time, because this was sort of pre-social media, fully were like, oh, it's done. There's going to be Coloradoans up here. You know, and then and actually Boulder gets evoked all the time. With yeah, that. it's yeah. funny. I mean, all over the world, it's like nobody <laughs> nobody wants anyone from Boulder to show up. It's like the final like nail in the coffin of your yeah, climbing. It's gotten so I'm bad. Sorry. The Boulderites are here. Yeah, I mean, it's I'm sorry, Boulder, and I know there's tons of listeners in Boulder, and I have tons of friends in the Boulder climbing community. But that's just a fact, isn't that funny? How it's like, oh, when Boulder shows up, it's over. Yeah, it's like, it's like the. <laughs> kind of xerox type slander i know it's funny it's like um like south park you know when the, all the, the hollywood people show up yeah ruin the sewers with their wheatgrass but uh <laughs> yeah so it's funny because that was literally like oh my god they're gonna be up here and then the following summer after i'd published that um i went up there and like was virtually alone in the ghost for like three weeks in the prime season like Nobody came. Like nobody, not just no Coloradoans, but like nobody. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, 
I'm like, yeah, no, I think you guys are pretty safe. Yeah, and the ghost does a couple challenges to get in there, yeah, too. Yeah, for sure. Four-wheel drive, yeah. and it's easy to get lost. I've only been in there in the winter, and right. my whole experience was being lost, driving around on four-wheel drive roads, yeah. trying to get to a climb. Well, and then the famously, you, you got to cross all these rivers. Yeah. And so in the summer, you got to just like to hope they're low enough to get your freaking truck across. And in the winter, of course, it's, it's... You hope you don't punch through yeah, the river. Yeah, I mean, I think it's famous because people seem to do every year where their, their truck goes in. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then it feels kind of remote, too, yeah, because yeah. you go through like a re reservation to get there. And so it's not like there's a nearby urban zone, or at no. least it doesn't have that feeling. No, you're out there. Yeah. Like quite a ways. Yeah. And you're no. like, oh, if we get stuck in the river, it's going to be a long, cold night. Yeah. Or walk or... But. Yeah, well, I mean that—that's when I, I would be down there bolting by myself and and uh, cross a river like and have like a big wave go over my hood. I'm just like, okay, don't sputter out because if I if it does, I gotta like open the doors and get out of here, <laughs> let, uh, let my truck flood. Yeah, so, you yeah. hope and pray nothing goes wrong in the bolting efforts with that too. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know it's funny because at the time it didn't. You know, I just had this mentality of like I'll be fine, and and to this day I probably. It was probably one of the most dangerous things objectively that I've ever done. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've had so many weird close calls out bolting. And for me, yeah, it's usually by myself too, mm -hmm. but like around your race. So it's a yeah, little, so somebody little be closer. Like, oh, whatever and, happened to Jason? Yeah, if I don't show tonight, up at yeah. home, yeah. you know, somebody's going to come looking for me. Yeah. And I'd be out there with like pre cell phone, just up there several pitches sometimes too, and like sharp rock and loose rock and. Yeah, I mean, it didn't occur to me at the time, but now I look back and I'm like, wow, you're lucky because, I mean, it would have been days at least till somebody showed up and wondered why there was like an empty truck, truck just sitting yeah. there. And then, I mean, after that, like they'd still have to know where I was, which they wouldn't have. So, yeah, it was Hopefully silly. You got some bright colors dangling up on the wall. And well, it'd be too late. It'd just you'd be, be like that guy in the Iger that was yeah. <laughs> hanging by the train window. Yeah, exactly. It'd be a tourist so. attraction. <laughs> yeah. So you call your home yep how long have you been down there i moved to your in 2001 okay and uh it was my wife and i and our son and uh we had a house there and lots uh life happened and right. then come around like 2010 it was time for a little bit of a change so we moved uh -huh. to flagstaff for two years and salt lake for two years and then more or less i came back to your okay. after that i we own the house still, even after uh, we left. So I kind of had to keep coming back, and I would still, I still love the climbing, and so right. I still put up roots and all right. that kind of stuff. Um, so I never like fully left Ure, and now I I find myself back again, and uh, I guess I like it there. It's whether it be the, you know, it's sort of like Cheers. You you want to go somewhere where everybody knows right, your name. right. Um, there's a nice familiarity there, and the. The scenery doesn't suck or the access to the outdoors. Some people think the rock sucks, but, you know, I think they're just kind of missing the vision. Well, it, it seems like it depends on the cliff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, we got like at least six different rock types, all right. like a stone's throw from town. So, yeah. you know, if you don't like one style, you another 10 minutes, you'll be at another style and a whole different rock type. Yeah, totally. Speaking of that, were you a climber before you arrived there? Yeah. Um, so what's your background in that? Okay. We'll turn the clock way, way back. My first experiences to climbing would have been early 90s. Uh, I grew up in Maine and New Hampshire. 
And let's see here. Maine. Yeah. All right. It's yeah, a couple people. Don't have, you probably couple, get a few Mainers. Yeah, no, I don't think so. Well, no? <laughs> well, Lisa Hathaway was originally from Maine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. She's a Mainer. Yep. So, yeah. They've been, so you're not the first, but uh, a few Maine climbers just their ears perked up. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think I remember seeing Peter Croft on TV or something as a kid at one point and being like, wow, that's crazy. And that was a moment passed and the TV channel changed. Um, but as I got into like high school, uh, I was started to, I like to wander my surroundings. We'll say like I would get topo maps and go hike up our swamps and we didn't really have that many mountains, but I like to go explore around. And I, we did have some areas that, uh, we would climb at um, in New Hampshire. There's a place called Stonehouse Pond that was near where I was living, and hopefully I didn't let the cat out of the bag on that one. But I'm sure it's on Mountain Project now. <laughs> oh man, they're all coming now. Yeah, oops, all the secrets are out. <laughs> um, yeah, Boulder. <laughs> Did you hear that, Boulder? Maine. Yeah, go get it. Go get it in Maine. <laughs> <laughs> um, then uh, I. Tried like uh, I ended up being I think a Sunday River ski area uh-huh. on a family holiday, and they had a little climbing wall in there, and I tried it, and I was the only one, so I got like kind of a personalized lesson for about an hour, and so I was like, oh, I got this climbing thing, I like it. About six months later, I took my paycheck into EMS dangerously and said like, hey, what do I need? And the salesperson guy was uh, pretty hesitant to divulge much information, but I eventually pulled a rope and two harnesses, a couple carabiners, and a blade of ice out of him. Nice. And I think I think like a big fifty foot piece of webbing. And uh, so I dragged my drinking buddies out to Stonehouse Pond, and we had n- another area that's a little more famous called Patuckaway, and uh, we'd go top rope and. That was all swell and dandy until um decided to have a non-partying night and we wanted to go rappel off of an old satellite dish and something went wrong with the rigging, i.e. I think my knots because I wasn't real detail-oriented then. And I took a 35-foot ground fall and broke my wrist and elbow and probably more sensible people would have thrown in the towel mm-hmm. after like being benched for a couple weeks. I was like, climbing's rad. I want to do yeah. more. And so my grandparents had offered a, a climbing lesson. Yeah, see, that was probably I, a really good I knew idea. that was about to happen, actually, in your story. I was like, and then somebody looked at your broken wrist and broken elbow and were like, well, maybe we should get him some actual instruction. So the way I am, I took that and went, all right, I'm going to learn how to trad lead. Nice. <laughs> and so I got a guide for a weekend, and that was my trad leading mentorship uh-huh. and uh i bought like four cams and a couple nuts and off i went again <laughs> and uh i stayed alive fortunately i remember taking the first lead fall that i think everybody must remember that except it was on a cam so right we didn't really have sport climbing in my area so i didn't even understand what it was mm-hmm. until i moved to colorado um and you know i survived the rest of high school and moved to colorado and then went oh wow Everybody climbs and there's climbing everywhere. Right. There's these bolted things. And What year did you climb. graduate high school? Do you remember? Uh, 95. Okay. Yeah. Easy one to remember. Nice. So. Sport climbing was had just taken hold here too at that point. So Yeah. I remember the, the guide that I learned to track climb from saying something about sport climbing and I was just like, what's that? But I didn't have the 
<laughs> enough curiosity right. to ask, I guess. Yeah. So like, you were still in high school with this guide and stuff like that? Yeah. I mean, okay. I the guide guy, like, you know, it was two days of guiding. Mm-hmm. Like, one was like an on-the-ground thing, and the next day I went and did my first multi-pitch, and then I was on my own again. And as a high school kid in Maine, wherever you were in Maine. Yeah, I was on the border of Maine right. and New Hampshire. Right. What were you supposed to do as a high school kid? Well, if you're a jock, you play <laughs> sports. And uh, if the towns I lived in, we would mostly party uh, in and the go woods. four-wheeling. And yeah, that's, that was pretty much the that's dividing much line. It. There yeah, wasn't, yeah. You know, you could go to the beach and stuff, but it wasn't like <laughs> cool beaches. Like I would, I remember, you know, the severe disappointment of coming home and turning on the television. And back then MTV had music. Right. And there'd be all these beautiful people dancing on the beach. And I was like, oh, that's rad. And I'd go to the beach and it'd either be empty or like, a lot of overweight people, right? And nobody dancing, or a, or a nor'wester <laughs> blew it, blowing in, or nor'easter, which, yeah, whichever nor'easter. one, <laughs> iceberg yeah. floating by. Yeah, the beaches were. You know, I appreciated the. I don't know, maybe the fact that they weren't crowded or completely exploited, but uh, at the same time, some beautiful people dancing to music would have been kind of a fun change. <clears throat> Did you? Uh, what was the sort of vehicle to get you out here then? College. So I moved to Denver for art school and uh, got a degree in photography, which, um, you know, <laughs> that's one that's gotten pretty devalued over the years as a commodity, but I've made a trade. To... Yeah. But that's where like, I'm st- I still feel really happy that I'm able to pull it off and like guidebooks and um, various other projects I do. So uh-huh. I think I'm probably one of the few people I graduated with that still utilizes it regularly. Right. right. Um, but yeah, that whole world's changed a lot from working in the dark room to what it is now. So tell me about some, you know, you, you grew up climbing in Maine, sort of, you were figuring it out in Maine and you arrived in Colorado. So tell me about, uh, some, some of the adventures you remember, you know, once you got into the land of plenty. Oh, wow. Well, initially, you know, I, once I moved here, I still didn't know many climbers, right? you know, and like the school i think i was staying out on like what is it uh quebec and east colfax so we're kind of like almost on aurora right and uh you know coming from like a kid in the woods or at least like rural towns like being that far from a patch of woods was uh pretty um what's the word like unsettling or you know i'm just like oh god what have i done right (laughs) i can like Look out, and I see the mountains, but they're really far away, and I don't know how to get to them. But I utilized my social skills and rounded up my college friends, and we would go on weekend trips in the mountains and stuff. And there was, I think there was one or two of them I, I s- sought out that uh, knew a little bit about climbing, and we'd go with them. And uh, my wife, Lisa, would we met like later in college. And she joked around. She's like, you managed to bring four non-climbers to Waco Tanks? How the hell did you do that? Be like, hey, let's go uh, take some photos at this uh, place. And uh, do you mind if I, like, climb for a day? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, there's all kinds of weird adventures like that. And then, you know, eventually I made climbing partners. I would go to Morrison all the time. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you ever went. There's, like, a little roadside bouldering area by, I guess, Red Rocks Amphitheater. Sure, it's super famous, yeah. Yeah, so I'd like borrowed my girlfriend's car and I would go there and I met cool people. And, you know, funny enough, like uh, 
a lot of the people I met there, like uh, Rob Raker and Annette, like I still run into those guys. You know, it's been what twenty years now, and um, and I went there I think last summer, and one of the guys recognized me. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, how does this guy recognize me from like 20 years ago? That's incredible. <laughs> but yeah, some of the folks that uh, I used to climb with, they're still, still banging there. it out. On, yeah, it's awesome. On the Morrison <laughs> bouldering. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's not it's, that big of an area. No, so. but it's storied. You know, there's definitely, you know, all, all the folks who had developed all that stuff in the front range from Horse Tooth on down. Most you know, of them are still here, yeah, the ones that are still alive. Yeah, developed the problems there as well. So it is, it's funny. It's a little sort of blink and you miss it kind of area but um a lot of legend yeah around that place so so you went back yeah it's yeah, kind yeah. of fun i was i think i might have been there to teach some guys some rope access stuff uh-huh. um so we just needed somewhere with a couple bolts and a little cliff to teach learn to rappel on kind of thing again you're still just like developing you know what what were the, some of the big things that really caught your attention i guess being like in the front range you're definitely like in a bubble so even if you are, I guess I'd say like climbing strong, you never feel that way, right? You might be climbing. Right. I mean, back then, like it would have been like 513, right? And now maybe it's, I don't know, harder. Um, but like you never felt like you were anyone special because there's so many like famous climbers around you on the front range. And it would, you'd run into them regularly. And, you know, back then I'd have starry eyes when I would and it all seemed pretty cool. Um, but it wasn't until like, I suppose after I left the Denver Boulder area and moved to Uray and started getting into ice and mixed, um, that the development really seemed to jump in terms of like, I, I think again, it's like who you meet, right. And who you're exposed to, like when we moved to Uray like our house was rented. So we stayed in our a neighbor's house for like a month and our neighbor was Jim Danini. And then, you know, Oh, it's Jim Danini's birthday party. And Lisa's gonna cater the, the event and like, Oh, here's George Lowe. And here's, you know, everybody else in the climbing world, Malcolm. And I was a pretty, like pretty good rock climber by the time I moved to Uray. And then I think getting exposed to all of that, these other, like, like legends and then having the skills to apply to mixed and ice. Like it came very easily to me, the, those aspects of the sport. Right. And then Michael Gilbert was there like developing roots. He had kind of gotten there a couple of years ahead of me and put in the pool wall and a number of other crags. And he's like, Hey Jay, you're cool here. Here's a drill and some bolts, go put up roots. And so I got like exposed to being able to put up roots where it was never even really on my radar around Boulder because everything had been climbed yeah yeah for sure you're you're finding like little things in the cracks yeah so i just kind of I, I guess you'd say like i moved to uray at like a pivotal time both in terms of what was happening with the sport we were just getting rid of our leashes and all of a sudden ice and mixed climbing became more like rock climbing at mm-hmm. least in terms of the movement and then i was exposed to a lot of people in the industry and talent and things really picked up from there. I started bolting roots and then, you know, I being part of the Uray ice festival was kind of an obvious thing because it's like the biggest party in town, at least for the winter. So I was like, Oh, well, I'm going to belay and volunteer on that. And a year or two later I was competing. And then, you know, all of a sudden all my heroes were now my peers. Right. Um, 
And so that was like super amazing. You know, now it's like, instead of reading about these people in the magazines, I see them every year at competitions, you know, like Sean Isaac and Will Gadd and whoever else was a thing then. And, um, so we get to, you know, we would, the Knicks climbing competitions were very like non-competitive mm -hmm. in terms of like against each other. Like everybody's super friendly and we kind of like would compete against ourselves, but it wasn't like ever that heartbreaking if, you know, one person did a little bit better than you or, you know, cause you kind of all take turns doing a little better. Right. <laughs> each comp anyway. And, um, there's only one or two comps a year. So that kind of made it a little bit of a drag. It'd be a lot of training for a couple runs on the mm -hmm. stage, but <laughs> did that just seem natural to get into that because you were there and they were doing the ice fest and, um, in terms of, of this, this very, even now sort of niche sport of competitive mixed climbing. Yeah, I guess it did. You know, it was just kind of part of my wanting to be part of the community. Right. right? Like, and it was who was I was surrounded with, like Mark Miller and Michael Gilbert were working on the comp routes. And I was like, oh, this is great. I'll, I'll help you guys out. Mm -hmm. And that led into route setting and competing and volunteering and all kinds of things of that nature. So it all happened like really organically. It was never like, oh, I want to be a competition climber. Like that part of it never stuck out to me beforehand right. or would have ever been on my radar. Have you traveled very far to compete? Festiglass, and then what's that kind of far that's in quebec oh yeah yeah so it's pretty far yeah <laughs> and uh i never made it to europe to compete there's pretty hefty price tag on that one mm -hmm. about the time like that started to get more popular to where the americans would go over and do world cup stuff i was kind of like i guess distracted by other things in life um it, it was getting harder to you know pull like 10 grand to go and do the World Cup circuit, something uh -huh, like that. Uh -huh. I, I wish I had had the experience, right. but you can only be so many places and so many right. times. And that's kind of where the sport's gone now, where you have to go get that World Cup experience if you're going to excel in the competition aspect of the sport. Like, it's really changed a lot. It used to be you could use your local climbing crags for training. Mm -hmm. And that also kind of led to, like, some of the root development I did was creating new crags to where we could experiment and get stronger, like the Hall of Justice. I kind of think of Ure, at least in the sort of lower 48, of one of these kind of hot spots for dry tooling, even yep. still. Um, I mean, I don't know what, where else, I mean, Vale's got some, but where else has got the kind of concentration of sort of the, the kind of sport style, like dry tooling crags? Yeah, so that's kind of an interesting thing that was popping up in my head on the drive over here today. And so like Uray, we've got maybe like four ish dry tooling crags, three of which are like fully dry tooling. Like, you know, started out like we'd have the ice park and we'd put in mixed lines and, you know, for the areas that didn't right. have ice and then skylight, which is just up the road. It's also very famous. Initially those were all like mixed routes where you would climb some rock to get to ice and then uh, I decided to put in some, like, really easy rock-only routes one day. And they were, like, right along the roadside. And I was actually, like, walking home kind of embarrassed. Like, <laughs> like oh, man, I just, like, bolted this, like, short little chassis thing. It's kind of easy. And uh, I don't know how this is going to go. And I think I left some gear or something. But I showed up the next morning. 
and somebody's already climbing my route. <laughs> so, <laughs> really? Yeah. So ended up naming it local local scoop because I didn't even get a chance to climb it. Like, <laughs> and so the roadside dry tooling actually became pretty popular. Should have red tagged it, bro. <laughs> I was it the statement I like anything between first and ascent is just bullshit anyway. Right. <laughs> um, you know, I was just thrilled that somebody even wanted to climb it. So, uh-huh. and then, you know, that area kind of led to the hall of justice, which is pretty popular now. It, a number of years, people just thought I was nuts putting roots up in that big chassis cave. Um, but it also led to a whole rock climbing area above it and we got a dual use cliff now where we have a big cave with dry tooling and then there's some really fun rock roots above and then i developed another area in town that hasn't gotten as popular yet but we call it the remedy and so that's like our local uray dry tooling and then in terms of other yeah there's not a lot of other dry tooling crags in the country we got east vale and I know there's more out there, but they haven't really like, I think they're often done in quiet because like rock climbers will get upset if people think you're scratching up chossy shitty caves. Yeah. I mean, but the, I mean, the, <laughs> I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, there was a time when like the only thing dry toolers had to do was to go dry tool rock roots that had been bolted and do them in the winter. And that, that, you know, right away became yeah. a problem. In terms of, because a lot of times a hold that's like been there for 20 years as a handhold, you put oh, the yeah. wrong pressure on you the throw back. throw some of, yeah. leverage yeah, on yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's like a great way to remove some loose exactly. rock. So there has been this like, uh, I know in Canada too, like there was this problem where it's like, where are we going to dry tool if, if we can't dry tool on this stuff? Which led to people making dry tool specific crags, which is cool because a lot of times you keep calling them these big chossy cliffs. And a lot of times they just don't lend themselves to to free climbing or summer sport climbing anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, for a multitude of reasons. One is we got the leftovers, right? People have been, the sport climbing mm-hmm. revolution came, and especially like I really right. noticed this in Salt Lake, like anything within an hour, whether it be like right alongside the road or two hours up a trail had been bolted. And so, you know, what's left are these like, decomposing <laughs> filthy <laughs> kind of rifle like caves right <laughs> except yeah if the, you'd got there first i mean rifle would yeah rifle giant, would have been prime this for giant tri tool area um, but it was too late <laughs> yeah and then the you know what's left in rifle unfortunately we can't climb on which would be a great for uh mixed climbing but Maybe someday in the future. Who knows right. if the right access stuff You mean comes the, the lower canyon? Yeah, the yeah. lower canyon has right. some really cool caves and nice formations, but mm-hmm. that's a, a whole other discussion. Right. It's not. But uh, back to, yeah, dry tooling. Yeah, we just ended up in like crappy chossy things. And as a result, you know, trying to get like a bolt in a decent piece of rock is kind of like your first initial challenge and not like trundling yourself <laughs> into oblivion in the process. Yeah, I mean, developing chosses, it's a whole new type of, right. of art forms. Right. It's almost as much like construction. Tell me about a little bit about the evolution. Like, what was the, the draw, or was it just sort of natural to get to where you're doing, you know, like bolted, no ice, mixed roots? Because um, it's, I mean, it's still, a, it's like, it kind of, it feels like the popularity of that has its own specific thing kind of comes in waves 
Yeah. And uh, I mean, it's definitely like an offshoot right. where, I mean, bouldering at one point. Right. People are like, Puh. That's a way, yeah. What are you silly people doing? Yeah. And or we're just practicing for the bigger, bigger climbs, you know. Was, right. Was its and, original, uh, you know, and dry tuning's kind of, and same with gym climbing or right. all these different kind of like branches on a tree. I know for me it came well. I mean that little story of skylight, and then I started bolting the Hall of Justice, and my initial route there, I picked like the worst section of rock because I went through an icicle, mm-hmm. and we were looking for. You know, stuff with ice. And then it kind of made sense to fill it in as a crag because if it's just one route, nobody's going to go there. And that also kind of led to, I guess we'd say, like the enhancement of some dry tooling holds. Right. And I know we're kind of getting into like a voodoo territory here, but we're also talking about like some of the worst rock you could ever imagine. When you try to clean a huge cave, my wingspan's probably six, four, or five. But that doesn't give me that much width if I'm hanging from a bolt. Right. So we kind of like, you have to find a path of somewhat solid rock that you can put bolts in. And then if you're trying to climb it naturally, you know, you have like a pry bar that you're using. So everything just flies off. And uh, that led to kind of like enhancing natural holds. And the peculiar thing is the more we would enhance, the more popular the roots would become (laughs) so i don't know what to say about it it's just kind of the the funny thing i observe is yeah the less ethics used the more people climbing there seem to enjoy it right some at least in those types of cracks right you know it's all a learning experience too like the sports changing we've gone from you know having heel spurs to removing them and now it's like rock shoes with the front point almost and then we got the Krunkanogi picks that are like a hardened uh, armor-plated tank steel. And so those things will dig into the rock much more than our old picks would. They're also way stronger, so you don't break them. And so now we're starting to see the impact of that like hardened steel on the rock. So like holds are either getting blown out or made better or deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting. And what, I mean, what is the appeal for you personally? Of dry tooling? Yeah, what do you dig about it? Yeah, so that's a good question. I love rock climbing too. Um, I love most aspects of the sport, but like I'm 6'4 and I'm about 210. Um, And my hands are huge and my feet are like a 13 and a half. So when it gets to like the upper grades, I really feel like physically limited. Like I can only crimp on such small holds. I know someone (laughs) else will say bullshit. You can reach right past them. Right. But um (laughs) The physics and the gravity sometimes I feel like work against me right. by having, you know, it's like a, a 513 crack. Well, half the time my fingers don't even fit in it. I might have like a quarter of my tip in there and that's it. So with uh, dry tooling, I feel like those handicaps have been removed almost. Like mm-hmm. we've all used the same ice picks. Right. So now I'm not limited by having a big hand or a foot that won't stand on an edge. I got, you know the same piece and I can hold on to something bigger and my hands won't fatigue as much. So I can get like pumped out of my mind and you know, you can get so much more pumped by have holding on to a big hold than a small one. So you can push yourself further. I also love the fact that it's kind of the lawless section of climbing where we're like, you know, middle finger to the establishment. We're going to make this up and do it our way. Um, and then places like the hall of justice, it's, 
we're up at 10,000 feet and you're in this kind of beautiful winter wonderland minus a big mining operation down below. It's not active, so at least it's quiet. Right. But uh, you can be up there in a t-shirt in January because, right. you know, we got the Colorado sunshine and it's south facing. And especially now that there's a bunch of other people up there to climb with, it's like hella fun. We go up there and we get pumped out of our mind and we heckle each other all day long. And it's um, really fun com com camaraderie. Like most of us know each other to some degree and it's great if there's somebody we don't know. So yeah, you combine all those things and you kind of have a really good time. <laughs> yeah. It's like you found, yeah, your own little clubhouse, so to speak. Yeah. And kind of made it um, made it my own little clubhouse in a lot right. of ways. Inadvertently, right. that wasn't necessarily my intention as I do it. I was just out there trying to figure stuff out like uh -huh. everyone else. And it's great, like places like the hall of that there's people interested in going in there because it was a massive amount of work. I mean, they're 25 bolt roots in a big cave, and you know, putting those things up by yourself takes like days to a week for each route and a lot of money. And so the fact that that vision, you know, is appreciated and shared years later. It's like, oh, super cool. And then, yeah, having fun places to go and people to climb with are like super double bonus. Do you take these skills uh, elsewhere around the world? I mean, I traveled the world to climb, right? Yeah. Like, you know, I go to Alaska a lot right. and um, been to Norway. And I mean, I yeah, like we put up some mixed climbs in Norway, Steve Beringer and I, like, three or four years ago mm -hmm. but like we didn't bolt any dry tooling routes or anything just because right. it's you start bringing drills and bolts and all that and the next thing you know it's a construction project and not a climbing trip um but you know the skills that we developed and you know the eye for lines and all of those kinds of things yeah we put up some like cool mixed trad routes so i, I guess we'd say i used it that way and same in alaska like put up some big climbs there um in the winter and you know all of everything you do before you like helps you lead to what you're working on and where you're going but um yeah i haven't taken the construction aspect of it too many other places yeah no i meant to just the climbing skill actually the skill oh yeah. yeah yeah and then there's all kinds of like weird things like i've picked up on too like in thailand one guy was using like rock v threads as a way to combat uh, the corrosion right. in the bolts, which they were fairly unsightly, but it's kind of an interesting concept for something you can do, at least for an anchor, right? Right. And then there's other, like, you know, I did some canyoneering guiding five or six years ago around Zion, and uh, they do all kinds of interesting stuff in terms of, like, retrievable anchors and different approaches to rope work, and occasionally I'll bust out you know, one of those tricks for wrapping off of something, but climbers don't like making repelling scary like right. canyoneers do. Re retrievable <laughs> anchors. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because there's a whole bunch we could do with retrievable anchors as the climbing community for Leave No Trace, but not in our field of vision. I think they got into that in the Canyonlands, though. They being a couple people. Yeah, yeah, Crusher. exactly. Like, I think Steve yeah. Crusher Bartlett and right. I think just him, maybe. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> they did so. some crazy, like, two-by-four yeah. things. Yeah. yeah, where they could flip the two-by-four off after they wrapped off of it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we could probably do stuff with, like, sand trap anchors in some places, too, but they'll never get popular. <laughs> uh, have you seen one of those? No. 
it's like wrapping off of a tarp essentially and then use a second rope to like deflate the tarp that is just full of sand what yeah <laughs> wait say that again so there's canyoneers some in the desert use what's right. called a sand trap anchor and so it's a tarp that's folded in half and you you repel off of it and there's a second tagline that like unfolds the tarp and pulls it all down so it's just the weight of the sand or it's yeah. like jammed or something it's just the weight of the sand and a little friction that uh keeps you to the wall and you know you Canyoneering is more of a group activity, so the the heavy dude or whatnot, heavier guy would like sit back and give a body back up in case right. the you know anchor were to fail, and then whoever the last guy is, you know, says a little prayer and go over the edge. <laughs> See, <laughs> you'd be the weight guy, I'd be the yeah. last guy. Yep, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'd be like, well. <laughs> Hope it goes well for you, Chris. <laughs> it didn't move while I was up here, so we're good to go. Should be fine. I'll yeah. jump a little bit on it. And, and test then you it. just like flip it open or something? And it, like, yeah. All the yeah, sand like comes the, down. And the... the second rope is tied to like just one half of the folded um, tarp, yeah. essentially. And it like pulls the sand out of it and the whole thing down. All right. Well, yeah. That's... It makes the bee thread seem really safe. That's not going to, yeah, it's not going to catch on. I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty fun though YouTube it <laughs> there's another good one called a fiddlestick anchor where you um, you repel off essentially like a slipknot and a, uh, you put like a piece of PVC through the slipknot that keeps it from slipping and you would wrap off that and then the tagline pulls the piece of PVC out and it releases the right. whole slipknot and that would be like in case you know like you're if you were to fold your rope around a tree and you got to pull the whole half of it down, there's going to be too much friction and right. it'll mess up the tree and stuff. So that solves that because you really only have like 10 feet around the tree instead of like half the rope. And you can do things to like protect the rock. Like sometimes you might repel off an arch or something like that. Yeah. Again, it's a weird way of making uh repelling adventures. <laughs> it's like... As climbers, none of us actually like repelling. No. <laughs> It's all you. I mean, it's a big part of the canyoneering, though. It's like pretty much oh, yeah. what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. And then, you know, like I do rope access work too. And I always joke, like, well, I climb for fun and I get paid to repel. Right. <laughs> Which I, I guess the people who do rope access enjoy repelling too. So, what So what do you do to put this whole life together? I mean, it How sounds it like you're get a builder and you're, you're rope access and uh, write guidebooks. And... Yeah. Yeah. So it's just a weird, like, pieces of history that evolved, you know, I try to like corral them and make a life out of it. So I'm director of IT and marketing for a construction company called Summit Sealants. So I do my, do photo and video projects for them. I still get to use my college degree. Right. Um, I run the website. I help out with all our like networking and everybody's computers. But then I also have a rope access background I got into at one point when I um, got tired of being on the computer and thought, you know, my climbing skills would fold over. So I also do like all of our challenging rigging projects for the company as well, which means I get to go do a bunch of weird industrial tourism. So I get to go in these like old churches and... um crematoriums and i got to go up in the was at the lakeside amusement park tower the other day and 
like top rooftops of um casinos and high rises and do rigging stuff um for the company um and all this of course i do at t- for various other projects on the side too at times and so yeah it's a really weird mix of things i've brought together but it works it keeps me from getting bored yeah yeah and you've got this climbing lifestyle i mean you still are on trips and, and yeah uh, yeah and then i i try to overlap it since like i got to drive from uray to denver all the time for work i'll stop and get like guidebook photos like on my way over here i Stopped in Uniweep Canyon and got some ice shots for the next version of Supper Candy. Kind of double down on whatever I can for both efficiency and for fun, too. So let me ask you this last one, because it seems like you're an all, like, I mean, just this all-around guy. Like, rock climbing, dry tooling, big mountain climbing. What's, like, the what's like the perfect trip? I think these days I'm... Jo- I like the journey a little bit better than maybe the destination as I get uh-huh. a little older. <laughs> so I might like try to turn up the, the fun aspect. Uh-huh. I guess I would say like the perfect trips. I love like the people aspect. So either meeting new people or getting to spend time with friends I already know and having connections in a location makes the whole trip go a lot smoother. I guess it depends on who your friends are, but um, normally it does. So, you know, I like the unknown. I like adventure. I like a sense of accomplishment. Who I go with is really important. And then how that all transpires. It could be rock. It could be ice. It could be a mountain. You know, being able to just kind of deal with the punches. Like I tried to go up to Juno uh, with Carly last summer and... We were hoping to do something up around the Mendenhall Towers, take a helicopter and do some big alpine rock, kind of like bugaboo style. Um, But we just didn't get like a weather window and we had brought pack rafts with us because they only weigh 10 pounds. And, you know, when you go to Southeast Alaska, you know that there's a good chance you're going to get shut out with uh, from weather. So we just went pack rafting every day and it ended up being a great trip, even though we didn't climb anything. We were just hike up to a glacier and paddle down a river back to the road. And the, what does it say? The information on those rivers was a little spotty at best. So there's lots of fear and excitement and adventure to it all. So even though, you know, it's kind of like a failed climbing trip, it was super rad. We still made like lots of fun out of it and managed to get scared. And so the guidebook thing will be uh, something that you're going to keep going with. You got volume two, yeah, I got volume two under well underway because yeah. I was thinking I'd be able to include like most of Western Colorado, right. and it just didn't fit. So right. I got enough content for another book or two. And um, who publishes the book? Like, where do we get it? I do it myself. Okay, I had all the computer skills and stuff, so it seemed like a more profitable way of doing it. Definitely a lot more legwork. So Camp has been distributing for me. Okay. Uh, I have the book available for sale on my website, which is visualadventures.com. And a lot of mountain shops are carrying it. And if they're not, you should tell them they should. (laughs) So visualadventures.com is the website. And uh, is Camp selling it at their website too? It may or may not be on there yet, but it will be soon. Okay. And tell me the name again, Supper. So the new ice climbing right. guidebook is Suffer Candy Volume 1. Uh, it covers Uray, Telluride, and Silverton. Suffer Candy Volume 2 should be out late summer, I'm hoping. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to cover like Lake City, Redstone, your backyard, 
rifle, Grand Junction area, right. Blue Mesa, I think, provided I can fit all that into a book. Um, I also got Climbs of the Million Dollar Highway, which is between Montrose, Uray, Ridgeway, and Silverton. Awesome. Yeah. And that's yeah. all available at your website. Yep. Cool. Those two are available there yeah. in Corsi Ray Mountain yeah. Sports right and on. other local right shops. On. Awesome. Well, listen, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a little while. We've yeah. been trying to do this. I'm glad we finally got together to make it happen. Yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, it's like, I think there is this, always this worry like, oh, you put us on the map and, you know, things are going to get overrun. But honestly, if there's people listening outside of Colorado, it's probably the first they've heard of a lot of these places that you're <laughs> probably, talking about. Yeah. I mean, other than obviously Ure for the Ice Fest. But for the Uray area, you know, yeah. we got hot springs. The hikes alone are beautiful. I mean, I, it, I think the climbing hell is fun, is, whether it's ice or rock. It's astoundingly beautiful there, too. Yeah. I yeah. mean, if you aren't having a good time, then quit being such a snob and let yourself have a good time. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't have to be fun to be fun all the time. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's a pretty good quote. It doesn't have to be fun to be fun. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on, Jason. Thank you. So the last time we talked, we were living a, a life of blind innocence in January. I think it, I think it was the 26th, according to the date on the recording. You had stopped by my house, uh, just like the good old Enorma Cast days, you know, getting a face-to-face interview done. Um, we sat in a relatively small room together, unmasked. And the funny <laughs> thing is, is in the recording, you can hear that I got a little, I had a little cough going, um, a little cold because... As a father of of a four year old, three year old at that point, the you know you spend your entire life like battling various illnesses that come home oh, yeah. from school. So, yeah, so it's funny because it's it's like in my mind frame now, it's sort of shocking that you know that transgression of like here I am in the middle of winter with a very slight you know a couple times like I laugh and then I have a little cough at the end of it but now that's like full alarm bells yeah so I mean now you hear somebody cough around you and it just like puts the hairs up on your back you're like oh I hope that didn't come my way exactly so I don't know if anything if it's gonna ever go back to something like I mean maybe it was poor etiquette anyway you know to like force you into a room with me when I even had the smallest bit of a bug, but... Well, I did um, end up being sick for pretty much all of February. Um. <laughs> it was, we probably both had the Rona. Maybe. We well, yeah, <laughs> I thought I was one of the early adapters of the, the vid, but I never got a test then because, well, there wasn't any. I apologize. Um, that had to have come, if not from me, directly from our house. I ended up doing some work at a casino uh, oh. just after, and I hate casinos, so I blame them, like the buffet. Yeah. Like, there's nowhere to wash your hands near the buffet, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I was like, this is disgusting, and then I got like sick a couple days later. The food was terrible, too. But, yeah, it's funny how um, they, the, the whole like casino thing is about like making you confused and only be able to find the slot machines, even like... Even yeah, like forget a, even, about the bathroom, yeah. forget about like what time it is. It's like, you know, there's no daylight to, don't to say, ever don't clue even, you in. Don't even stop gambling to go to the bathroom is the right. message. Like, just hold it. <laughs> Keep on pouring money into those machines. Yeah, that's I mean, it's want. not. It's this is not something we're making up. Like, this is flat out. No, uh, they uh, documented. I they even design. pump oxygen in them too to keep you mm-hmm. awake. I've heard. Keep you awake. I mean, yeah, yeah. And the that's... the lights and the music and everything is like been 
consulted with, you know, deep state psychologists to figure out what, what the best thing to control your mind is, though. So. You know, that casino I was in was in Blackhawk, which I wouldn't recommend going to. But, like, it's always such a dichotomy when you're in, like, Vegas and you stay in the casino yeah. to climb. You're, like, you know, walking through the... Of course, you always have to walk through the casino and you've got oh, yeah. a backpack on and your outdoor yeah. gear and... It might be four in the morning and there's people, you know, drinking and smoking. I know. And then the other thing that's wild is that uh, I th- thought was a real sort of contrast was that the, you know, the cocktail waitresses, it's like yeah. 530 in the morning and they still have like their sexy evening. You know, they always have to wear their like weird little bunny sexy thing on. Yeah, it's pretty entertaining. And you're just like, you know, you're blurry eyed, like looking for coffee. And here's these like women you know, who had to do the graveyard shift in a freaking bunny outfit, basically. It's it's pretty horrendous. Yeah, it's where the night walkers and the day walkers meet, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but back to how, uh, let's see here, the vid has affected my guidebook stuff. Yeah, so oh, in, the, yeah, in, in the interview, you we talked about your, your guidebook that was new at the time, which was Suffer yep. Candy, uh, Volume 1, um, the kind of, uh, what is it, Your Ray Telluride Silverton Ice Guide. And uh, then we, you know, you were sort of blithely talking about how there'd be a volume two coming out in the fall. And then I'm sure that various vagaries of the pandemic economy and or life uh, took care of that. So what happened with that? Where, where's volume two languishing at this point? <laughs> On my computer. On your, yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, also in development on the rack up phone app. Mm. So um, I don't know if you're familiar with that technology, but it's a guidebook phone app. Okay. And I have one for Suffer Candy too. Um, okay. If you don't want to buy the guidebook, you can get the the phone app. And the phone app one, of course, is great because I can update it whenever I want. Um, right. Whereas the, the print guide, whatever you put out, stays in print forever. So you have a new edition. Uh, and it's a little easier to take, you know, with you on a climb. But, you know, not as good for bathroom reading or anything of that sort. The rack up thing is, is different, um, mountain project or something like that in that it, it's not user based, right? I mean, it's not user, uh, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? You don't have to source through, yeah, like 50 ego driven comments to get the information you need. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's just straight from the author and then it's got like, you know, your phone GPS and you like I draw lines on maps and mm-hmm. uh, it tracks you so you can use your phone to get to the to navigate. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's like, oh, go left here, go right here, things like that, as well as, you know, topo overlays and your route description. Um, so it's got a few more features than Mountain Project. Of course, it's got all of the climbs instead of what just people posted, or at least mm-hmm. all the ones I'm aware of. Right. Um, or the author. And, you know, while the comments can be really helpful in Mountain Project, they can also be the, you know, the dark side of our existence, mm-hmm. as we know on uh, any climbing forum. But I just kind of made the decision to kick the guidebook back a year based on, mm-hmm. you know, trying to round up ad sales when, uh, you know, everybody was just in a panic mode. Um, you know, during that time, there were no budgets for anything of that sort so i didn't even bother asking and then didn't really have the time to sit down and do the writing anyway right Um, so you know here here i am i think it's going to work out fine it'll give me you know more time to 
get the guidebook right the first time. Um, cause there's, you know, tracking down people and details is really a never ending task. Um, you know, people seem to like to find you and tell you stuff after they know you wrote the guidebook. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and you have to be careful because, you know, I like from your sort of neck of the woods is the, uh, you know, the black canyons in that general zone down where you are. And, and famously, uh, my friend, um, Robbie Williams, a buddy of mine made a very, uh, significant mistake in his original black canyon guidebook on the, like the most popular route in the canyon, the scenic this, cruise. Yep. Yeah. And so I don't remember yeah. the error, but I remember his guidebook and I remember talking to him. It was probably like years after the guidebook came out. It seems like he got a little bit of a beat down for that. Well, one. I mean, that place, you know, it, it was, is like, first of all, it's super confusing and the history yeah. was long and oh, literally yeah. like, People had died. He'd put up roots and like so. Gathering that information, you know, and this is all like not known to the person that goes into you know the the gear shop and buys it off the off the the shelf. And oh, entirely. But at the same time, you know, you gotta like you gotta take care of some of that stuff because, especially on a big multi pitch climbing venue, you're you know you're dealing with honestly people's lives. Like that's a place where where like mistakes can get people into serious trouble. However, oh, true. you're on your own. You you definitely need to, you know, take care of yourself. But it was just a simple, I think it was a simple go left when you go right or something like okay. that comment. I mean, I was, ended up in yeah. the wrong gully trying to get the scenic cruise once. So <laughs> no, I, that's your I don't blame it on Robbie, but <laughs> <laughs> or like, you blame it on the psychedelics. <laughs> oh, man, I maybe it was Robbie. I don't know. You know, like it's such a big place. And like you said, yeah. it's complex. And, right. you know, you go there for adventure, too. So you can make the argument that Robbie's guidebook left that element of adventure sure. much more than, you know, Vix now is such an impressive step forward in terms of like photo maps and history. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the amount of information he got was amazing. I guess it helps being the ranger, so you yeah. have a lot. But of But I mean, time he was trepidatious so. about putting it out as well. You know, having talked to him, like I don't doubt n- it. Yeah, n- I mean, not only did he have really close friends for for whom it was an abomination to put out another guidebook um, to their sacred, you know, personal climbing area, but uh, but yeah, but also this trepidation about getting things wrong historically and informationally. But um, I think he did. I mean, that that guidebook I think stands as like a a towering uh work i think compared oh yeah i mean just knowing what he had to job. try to deal with to find the information so yeah it's not like it's easy to go do all those routes no you know they're terrifying and dangerous and you know big commitment and yeah yeah um it's a thing back to that app i mean when you said that it can navigate you to the to the climb i think i i mean i think back from sort of my ice climbing days so long ago when there was very little or no information that seems like a just a huge step forward because finding oh, ice like, climbs, especially I on the approaches yeah, yeah yeah like i mean that would have got me probably down the right gully that you know yeah i was trying to find the scenic cruise right. or you know many others so yeah it's pretty cool um of course G- once you're in the canyon i'm not sure how well gps works but yeah well i'm uh, talking more about your your system i mean yeah like i said i i just remember finding ice climbs a lot of times because they're in gullies, it's like a lot of times you can't you can't see them. see them 
until you're like right up at the base of it, it suddenly appears if, you know. Yeah, like you don't know if it's in or, yeah. you know, exactly where it is. Yeah. Um, you know, I've got the, the jack in my pocket of having a drone. So sometimes I'll just go fly that instead of doing the walk. Um, <laughs> and it looks like other people are starting to pick up on that. That too. is amazing. Yeah, your, your, yeah. your drone preview. Yeah. So of, like of actually route. some of the climbs here in town, I can go fly from my porch and see if they're in or not, or if there's people on them. Like, I'm so lazy, I'll be like, oh, I wonder how crowded the ice park is so I can go top rope solo, and I'll pop the drone up and look at the parking lot and be like, oh, well, I guess it looks all right. <laughs> Holy, that's amazing. Well, I've while never still in my bathroom. heard of that. Yeah, yeah. that is sick. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's a matter of having, you know, fun tools for the jobs. Right on. <laughs> um, and, of course, like, for writing the guidebooks like it's super valuable like the amount of like post holing through you know balls deep snow um it saved me because like to get right. the photo it's not like you're walking to the crag you need to get to like the hillside across from it or something where nobody goes mm -hmm. um so yeah so much more efficient and then you know you get better angles things like that yeah that's a that's actually incredible because uh, you know again from going back to friends who've done guidebooks over the years, like that's a huge problem. And then, you know, even rock climbing, they have to go do it in the middle of winter because the trees are denuded, you know, that are in the right, way normally and stuff. So yeah, getting good pictures of cliffs in the past was, was super difficult actually in a lot of Yeah. Places. Or you got to like hustle a plane ride and try to shoot out the window, which is, you know, not particularly easy either. <laughs> and, and as far as like keeping attitude and, and staying psyched and, and climbing and stuff. How did the, how did the year go? You know, living in your Ray, we have like the fortunate situation of being far from everywhere and people. So like avoiding people is generally really easy. And it was interesting. Like town was super dead through the spring and we had like our, you know, small little climbing community anyway. And, you know, created a little pod out of that. And we'd go out, you know, to Western Colorado and climb. One thing I did observe was some of those areas were getting like especially camping getting hammered by people who just you know became van lifers for the pandemic, you know they might have been laid off or whatever, so a lot of these like remote areas saw exponentially more traffic, but by and large, like in our climbing exploits, we didn't see too many people, and you know it was a little bit quiet and lonely but you know, it's kind of like that out here anyway, especially during that time of year. And then come June, as sort of the pandemic lifted, like the floodgates opened on Uray, and we had like the busiest summer we've ever had up through until like the first week of November. And pretty much everybody was ready for the tourists to go home at that point. Like, just, you know, like really, I'd like to park in front of the post office and get my mail. That's kind of the measuring stick we go by, I think. All right. <laughs> Small towns. <laughs> yeah, so that was kind of my experience with it all. Right. You know, it's obviously canceled a lot of my travel plans, although I did manage to sneak in a trip up to Alaska. We were out on a sailboat and climbing off of that, so we encountered nobody um, for like two weeks besides our little group. Fortunately, nobody had COVID on the boat. That would have been unfortunate. I mean, I kind of miss traveling. And, you know, even now it's like, oh, do you travel or do you not? Um, it's really hard to weigh the risks. And, you know, I find it really changes on my own personal experience. Like as this 
second pandemic was ramping up, I ended up uh, doing some rigging on the Grand Junction Hospital because they needed to make more negative pressure rooms for COVID patients. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was hearing like firsthand accounts from the, you know, the people running the hospital about like all the beds were full. There's people dying daily. There's pretty much no beds in the whole state. Like if people are getting injured, they're having to, you know, they don't even know where they get sent. So it's like pretty terrifying, even just from like a recreational standpoint. It's like, wow, I should really consider toning back my risk tolerance, which is kind of a strange thing to take into climbing, you know, as well. And, you know, I finished that job and came back to Uray and I'm back in my little bubble where I don't see many people and stuff. And I sort of forget the pandemic's happening in some cases until I, Mm -hmm. you know, start talking to people or turn on the news again. Yeah, it's just, you know, even my own little bubbles like that, my perspective on what's happening changes dramatically. Yeah, yeah. I remember in March when it started, which wasn't long after we talked, you know, that was a, a message out there like, hey, you know, don't get hurt. You know, as yeah. best you can because of this, and that actually, at least in in on the Western Slope, never really came to pass. Then, um, they yeah, it wasn't uptick. bad then. Yeah, in fact, they opened up COVID wards and had to shut shut them back down because yeah, yeah. they weren't filling. Now it's yeah, like now it has happening. been happening. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and I probably wouldn't be that aware of it if I didn't have some friends in the medical community, and then having you know going to work at the hospital for right. A week or so um a couple weeks ago um and it was weird like the hospital was shut down to visitors so like walking down the halls like i would see almost nobody except the occasional um medical tech or doctor or something like that right. in the elevator but um by and large it was like almost kind of eerie like i don't know if you watch resident evil movies where the the hospitals are all empty but there's like blood stains on the walls yeah, right, right. And like the, that. The, there's sparks coming from the lights and like, yeah, yeah and things are flashing in the, in the hallway. <laughs> like, that was kind of how it felt. Um, right. Obviously not how it was, but. All right. So it's gotten really cold finally. Um, yeah. In the oh, last man, this has week been like so. the winter that hasn't up until yeah. recently. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, Colorado was like very dry and very warm uh, for most of October and most of November. I mean, um, we were actually all in December, November. like we were yeah, rock climbing yeah. in shirtless last week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but it's switched over. It's actually been super cold and, and cloudy. And uh, how's the ice coming in? Let's switch to something more uh, relevant. Yeah. yeah more um, relevant. Well, we just got like a couple feet of snow. So the ice that was coming in, you can now long, barely see because of all the snow. I think they're supposed to open the ice park. It's told the 19th. Okay. Um, I'm guessing it's going to be a partial opening because it looks a little bony. They had a right. bunch of volunteers in there yesterday with brooms. So they actually have to go in and sweep the snow off the ice. Because if they pour water on it when it's covered in snow, you get like these shells. Oh, okay. And they're super dangerous because um, you'll be climbing and halfway up a pitch, you get to a ramp on one of those shells and you could like shear off, you know, a big giant 20, 30 foot shell that's sitting on top of the snow so yeah the things that happen in the ice park are kind of interesting sometimes and then you know backcountry wise things are finally starting to shape up so we've had two forest fires in two years now due to so this year south mineral creek up by silverton Mm -hmm. um where the famous ice lakes trail assuming some campers started a fire giving it 
started where the campground was. Um, and so the Forest Service shut down that whole area for ice climbing this winter. Um, so that's unfortunate. Things came in dramatically late. I've still only gone out ice climbing like twice so far this year, which I'm, you know, usually I'm doing some pretty cool routes by the beginning of November. Things are catching up. We got a bunch of snow now, which now makes, you know, access a little bit trickier in some places. And well, an objective danger avalanche. too. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. um, putting this big chunk of snow on top of the sun heated garbage that was there is problematic for skiers and for ice climbers. Um, yeah. For both of like us. Like right now again, it's, yeah. It's probably excellent ski conditions, but once it settles down, you know, it'll, mm-hmm. it'll be what it is again. Um, you know, so it's not going to be a banner ice climbing year by any means, but things are catching up and, you know, usually we'll say the crowds don't really start coming in until just before Christmas anyway. I think it'll be all right. Cool. Awesome. And then, you know, the, I think the ice fest is changing a bunch of things this year and I haven't caught up with. All of the changes, um, I think they're spreading the clinics out instead of having them all in one weekend. They're doing it, I just want to say, like over the course of all of January or something of that nature. Uh-huh. Really, you want to go to the Ice Park website and find out the official details because most of what I'm saying right the second is, uh, you know, just pieces I picked up on and I can't guarantee the accuracy. I understand why, like, they're going to jump through the hoops and try to have something that they're going to call the ice fest. But it's just like, I mean, things, things right now, numbers wise and, and spreading wise are worse than they were in March and, you know, April and May when all the summer climbing festivals just said, screw it and canceled. And so, you know, yeah. it's kind just of a like, responsible thing the, to do, but t- man, that like yeah. winter is such like our social time here. Right. Right. Um, and I'm really sad to be able to miss like those opportunities to catch up with like all my climbing friends. Right. That, I mean, even local ones, I don't always see throughout the summer and, you know, the winter events are usually the, the best opportunity to catch up and see everybody. So the fact that we're not having those is a major bummer, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's oh, a total bummer. Again, it, the short but ironically, like the, the pent up desire for those things could, you know, while while something like the URA Ice Festival is trying to like, you know, keep it chill and spread it out and all this sort of thing, they could find themselves, you know, having banner numbers arriving. Just like, you know, your experience in the backcountry this summer was everybody's experience in every climbing yeah. area across the country was that not only were there more climbers, but there were all these just people there that were camping in their RVs and yeah in places where you never saw a non-climber you know there was exactly you know like indian creek for example is you know those campgrounds by and large are just climbers and were and this were not anymore yeah yeah. and so you know and and we're tribal and we like look askance when the gigantic rv kind of rolls down the dirt road and trying to find a place to park it's like 40 foot girth you know so but yeah it's just i think the the ice fest will be you know they're gonna have to you know, I don't know what they're going to do. I mean, you, you, you said you're not sure either, so we'll have to look at the website. But they're still doing. They may the comp, find themselves a little inundated for what they're planning. You know. Yeah, they're trying to live stream the comp uh, right. instead of you know getting spectators, spreading out the clinics. I'm guessing we're not having slideshows. We're not having vendors. Um, but you know, that's that's my own speculation. Um, yeah, I mean, I've always been like those swampy that swampy room. And- 
up on the uh, up yeah on the community in the community center. center. It always feels a little <laughs> sketchy in a normal year. Like yeah, you're exactly, in there with, like, yeah. It's like, you know, you walk in from this, like, cool, brisk outdoors into this, like, full swampy, like, smelly room. Yep. <laughs> I don't know, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if anybody can psychologically handle that, regardless of whether it was safe or not. <laughs> exactly. Now everybody would be like, oh. <laughs> yeah. Anyhow. Well, cool, man. Well, thanks for catching up. Um, sorry your, your app didn't get out t- in a timely fashion, but all of a sudden, like, the same thing as your guidebook, like it was a pandemic and it was about ice climbing and it just kind of like got shelved and, uh, but, uh, but I think people will enjoy it anyway. And, and it still remains pertinent, especially with yeah, this Yeah. And people like, I've heard mostly all great feedback, uh, from the guidebook. Unfortunately, I haven't come across cool. many glare, glaring errors, which is also cool. great from an author standpoint, you know, like it, it's always like stressful when you find out something you printed's not right. Aside from like, random weird little details like maybe a first ascensionist i find out changed or even i found out yesterday a route i thought i put up that other people had done but those things happen um yeah and there's actually if you read the history section um there's a long history of that happening here right. anyway i mean with ice climbs especially and my grandpa uh, did yeah. that in 1971 you little whippersnapper <laughs> exactly yeah um <laughs> you know, it's just little things like that but those aren't really important for most of our uh, experiences anyway. Right. I have a whole bunch to say about first ascensionists anyway, but we should probably save that for the next podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good, man. Otherwise, we'll be here for another hour. Well, cool, man. Um, I'm, I'm just glad you're doing well and, uh, and hope to see you soon. Yeah, come on out. Let's do some climbing. Yeah, yeah. Let's kick, do kick, it. Sing, sing. <laughs> <laughs> My lady's super into dry tooling as you... Yeah, as she was out know. here a month or so ago was climbing right. with her. You need to come out too. Yeah, it's funny. I, I don't know. We'll, uh, we'll see. <laughs> I do want to explore a lot of those crags though. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff down there I've never been to, so... Oh, some of the dry tooling, like, it'll be late December, early January, and you're at 10,000 feet in a picturesque, snowy winter wonderland. And if the sun's out, we're like climbing in t-shirts or without shirts right on. on. It's super neat experience. And All right, I, I need to just break my uh, break my my prejudice and and yes, go out there and, and do some dry tr- tooling. Um, Can't diss it till you try it. Right, that's true. You know, I I was a I was well, a, uh, a a ice climber who did you know mixed climbing because it didn't really have much of a definition. It was just like, Oh, there's no ice here. Let's scrape up this rock. You know? Yeah. We're, we're here with our gear. We might as well yeah. climb something. Well, it's funny yeah. because, uh, there's a route in the, in the, in the park, which I'm sure you've, I'm 90% sure you've done, but the famous all mixed up, yeah. um, up in, in Rocky Mountain National Park that actually at the time was something of a test piece when I was a, when I was an ice climber. Um, and I think most, sort of mixed ice climbers would find that to be pretty pedestrian at this point. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> but it was like, you know, Dun- I think Duncan Ferguson did it and he was a early like ace mixed climber um way back in the day. So Yeah. Um, that that was like a crowning achievement for me. So it's funny how how times change. <laughs> oh yeah. The the world's changed a lot. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Well, if if um if I don't come down, I'll I'll send Steph as an emissary. That works, too. (laughs) Cool, man. All right. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, everyone who's listening.
only my dreams. My belief is that all these dreams are, are yours as well. And the only distinction between me and you is that I can articulate them. And that is what poetry or painting or literature or filmmaking is all about. It's as simple as that. And we have to articulate ourselves, otherwise we would be cows in the field. Thank <laughs> you.